Last Sunday, we just dipped our toe into the beginnings of the origin of the last judge, a man by the name of Samson, who undoubtedly is also probably the most famous of all the judges. Even if you don't have a very deep biblical knowledge, maybe you've only been to a Sunday school here or an Easter service there, you've probably heard about Samson probably also heard of his downfall from Delilah. Samson is a famous character. He's also an infamous character. He's a man with so much potential that failed so miserably. And in a lot of ways, Samson presents for us kind of the the opposite. He's a weird foreshadowing in in an odd way of Jesus. Consider first just the beginnings of his story. We, we touched on it very, very slightly. Samson's unique of the judges because we're given his actual origin. We're given the story of his birth. He's the only judge that there was a prophecy regarding his birth. We find that within the culture, within the nation of Israel, by this point in our travels through judges, they're no longer crying out to God. They're no longer seeking a deliverer. They're no longer even whining about their predicament. In fact, under the reign of the Philistines, they've kind of embraced life, flourished in it, and they've completely forgotten about God. And so within the nation, things are the darkest. But does God give up? No. God comes through the darkness and he reveals himself to a woman and he says, I'm going to deliver the people even though they're not looking for it or asking for it or desiring it. I'm still gonna do it and I'm gonna give you a baby boy that will be delivered. Again, the origins have this parallel to Jesus. But we'll see that where Samson failed, Jesus would prevail. That Jesus would be the fulfillment. Jesus would be the ultimate deliverer. So there's, as we work our way through Samson over the next couple weeks, kind of keep that in mind. I'll point out some things that reinforce that parallel and add some depth to the story. Again, verse one, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the last time we find that in the book. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Again, I I refer you back to last week. We've kind of unpacked who the Philistines were. More importantly, within the context of what's happening in Israel right now, who they're not. The Philistines and the Palestinians have zero connection, although they do occupy the same uh, stretch of territory. Uh, Gaza is ancient uh, Philistia. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines. And it's astounding for 40 years. This is the longest period of of oppression like this that we find within the book itself for 40 years. That is in in, in the biblical understanding, a whole generation grew up under the thumb of the Philistines. Now within all of that, there was a certain man we're told from Zorah of the family of the Danites. So he's part of the descendants of the tribe of Dan. His name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. We'll see this in chapter 17 and 18. The Danites, again, one of the tribes of Israel, uh, had settled on the Mediterranean coast. In chapter 17 and 18, we see that they migrate north into kind of a territory that wasn't allotted to them. The Danites had an interesting story to say the least. But they bordered the, the, the territories of the Philistines. So we have this man, Manoah, He's in the tribe that's bordering the occupier, this threat, this governance. 
these people. And we're told that his wife was barren and had no children. Now, you got to understand for Manoah and his wife, and we're not ever given the name of this woman. I can't wait to meet her in heaven. I think she's a very special lady. I think she's, I think she's probably one of the, the coolest women in all of Scripture. Again, there's a parallel you'll find between this woman's heart and that of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the tenderness of this woman, the spiritual acumen, the understanding the bravery, the tenacity of this woman, a very cool woman, the wife of Manoah. And yet please note that she is in quite a difficult scenario. She's barren. Now within that culture, there was a stigma associated with barrenness. Now keep in mind, this was not a biblical, this was not like a biblically substantiated idea, but it was still this stigma that somehow a woman not being fruitful, was somehow some indication of God's displeasure about the woman. And so when they saw that there was a woman that was barren, that culture saw, well, there's something wrong with her. This is some judgment of God. God's cutting off this generation for a reason. Now that is an unfair stigma to Manoah's wife. In fact, within the law, there was conditions, whereas a man married a woman, and she couldn't bear him children that he could legally divorce her. And yet Manoah stays married to her. She's judged falsely. Rumors spread about her. So not only is Manoah and his wife also experiencing life under the reign of the Philistines, but then they also have this additional baggage. Verse three, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Now pause. We've done this multiple times in our travels through the book of Judges, but we have here again in your translation, it will have the angel. That's a definitive article, the. It's not a angel, one of the many multitudes. It's the, it's a definitive. This is a particular identity. And you'll note it's a capital A and it comes with a capital Uh, Lord, L-O-R-D, or Jehovah. This is the angel, the main messenger of Jehovah. And within the scriptures, and we've, we've touched on this, this is not the first time this character has emerged within our travels uh, through the book. We find most notably an interaction of the angel of the Lord with Gideon. He's probably one of the main characters, at least through the thread of this 400 some odd years. This is what we call a Christophany or also stated a theophany. This is what we would define as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I hope you know Jesus is the second member of the Holy Trinity. He is eternally God. He's infinite, no beginning, no end. The incarnation was not the beginning of Jesus. <laughs> it is not as though that Jesus came into existence when he came out of the, the, the birth canal of Mary. It's not as though that Jesus, his first experiences, his first thoughts, his first memories is a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Jesus existed beforehand as almighty God. In fact, anytime you have an appearance of God, a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament, it is the person of Jesus. Why? Well, the Holy Spirit is not seen, but we're also told that God the Father is also not visible. 
So any physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament is the presence of Jesus. When God said, let there be light and there was light, when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, who was it? It was Jesus. So like the Christmas story is not the beginning of his story. (laughs) And we find him here. The angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife. Jesus shows up in person. Amazing, right? And he says to her, indeed now you are barren and have borne no children. Now, the bearing no children thing is something that could be observed, you know. He comes, there's Manoah's wife. There's no little ones running around. You could reach the conclusion, well, you don't have any kids. But we find insight here because what's the introduction? You're barren. Now, right from the the bat, you got to be, if you're Manoah's wife, like, "Um, excuse me? Um, That's private information. Um, I have not posted that on my social media network. I'm not sure how you've come to ascertain that detail. So right from the bat, there is this divine knowledge of what's going on in her life. For a moment. I hope you understand that if you are going through something, Maybe you're in a season of barrenness, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a season of spiritual dryness or just unfruitfulness. You're just, you just feel like you're in a rut. Maybe there's something going on even deeper than that. Maybe there is a cause. Maybe there is a sin. Maybe there's something going on. Or maybe you're just in that funk. And, you don't, and you're crying out to God, and you're crying out to God, and you want God to intervene. I hope you take this detail. Manoah's wife is going through an experience, and who is very aware of the experience she's going through? Jesus. He doesn't show up and ask her questions. Why do you see so blue? Like, why are you so down? What is the essence of your depression? No, he's like, hey, I know exactly what's going on in your life. Even these deep, dark things even the things that no one else really knows, even those insecurities that you haven't voiced to your husband because you feel like you're letting him down. I know you're barren and you have no children. But, I love it, but. It's a good thing when Jesus says a but, you know, but. You shall conceive and bear a son. Note, she, she hasn't conceived. So right now she's still barren. But Jesus is like, this is what's going to happen in your life. You shall, it's a promise. Now, now I, I want you to, and again, I, I gotta be careful how I, how I artic- articulate this. She's given a promise here that is as sure as it can be. You shall conceive and bear a son. Interesting that God already knows it's going to be a son. Before anything has happened physically, God is already aware of this child's identity. We're going to see God's also aware of his future and his destiny. Don't tell me that life doesn't really begin until someone's born. Life begins before they're even conceived in the foreknowledge of God. You shall. Now, there's a promise. What's going through her thoughts? What's going through her mind? Do you know that the only way that that promise is fulfilled is for her to act in a measure of obedience? 
Like for something to be born into her life that God has says will happen, what does she have to do? Well, she's going to have to go home. She's going to have to tell her husband and she's going to have to get frisky. <laughs> like she's going to have to act on it. Like the only way she's going to conceive is to do the things that are necessary for conception. Which again, if you're barren and God's like, I'm going to bring fruit into your life. And God gives you promises and he meets you with promises that doesn't negate your faith in those promises that then act upon them. Well, God's told me he's going to do this and I'm going to live like it. You shall bear a son. Now, therefore, and again, if you have one of those red worded Bibles, you know, where in the gospels, all the words of Jesus are in red, the red letter Bible. Judges should be covered in red letters, by the way. Like this should be red lettered. And the same way that Jesus would speak to the multitudes on the shores of Galilee, he is speaking to this woman, this unknown, unnamed woman. Now, therefore, you'll conceive, you'll bear a son. Now, because of that, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, and not to eat anything unclean. Now, the, for the reason for those instructions, for behold, or think about it, you shall conceive, you'll bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. In Numbers chapter 6, we have this unique description of a particular vow sanctioned by God for his people. It was a vow of consecration. It was called the Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was intended for a particular season of consecration. It was something that was charged for men to do. There was conditions by which women could do it. It was a time where you were seeking the Lord. You wanted to consecrate yourself. So the way that it would begin is... For most people, you would start by shaving your head. You wouldn't eat anything of the, of the vine. You wouldn't touch anything dead. You would consecrate yourself to God. Your hair would grow for the duration of your consecration. And then at the end, you'd shave your head back off. It was this, this unique thing. And, and, and there's not a lot of examples of it in practice in the scripture of people uh, engaging in the Nazarite vow. Uh, Samson's unique because this is a lifetime vow. Um, and, and that's not exactly the construct of the Nazarite vow. It was supposed to be a temporary thing, a temporary consecration. Uh, a case can be made that the only other person that, that might have been consecrated for his life in the same way could have been John the Baptist. Uh, there seems to be some evidence of that as well. So you've got Samson, you've got John the Baptist. It does seem, if you, if you study the life of Paul, uh, middle chapter of the book of Acts, that, that for a season, Paul might have actually engaged uh, for a time in the Nazarite vow. But it was something, it was just a time where I was going to consecrate myself to God, consecrate myself uh, to God's purposes. I wasn't going to eat of, of the fruit of the vine. I wasn't going to touch anything unclean. I was going to be sanctified. And there was going to be this visible thing happening. I wasn't going to shave my head. I wasn't going to trim my beard. I was going to kind of let it go. Ladies, leg hair, armpit hair, it's a, it's a thing, you know, consecration, visible. I can see it, the vow of the Nazarite. So God has, has Manoah, your wife, I'm going to 
you'll conceive, you're going to have a son. I have a plan for your son's life, though. And at the end, we're told what that plan will be, for God will use the child to begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And because of that particular calling, God wants his life set aside. Even to the point that, like, I don't want you, I want you, Manoah's wife, to actually take the Nazarite vow presently while he's developing in your womb, for then he'll carry this forth for the rest of his life. Which is actually, like, scientifically a really ingenious thing, because it's only been within the last 75 years that we've really begun to learn uh, the effects of, of a woman's diet to a, a developing child. And yet here, God's like, I've got this call. He's never supposed to drink. He can't have any contact with the things that are unclean. I, I need you to do that now so it won't affect him. So he's going to be consecrated, going to be said. Now, that, that gives us an interesting insight into Samson. You know, another detail that makes him unique, and again, we can draw that parallel with Jesus, is that uh, Samson was a one-man show. God would use him to deliver, right? But unlike all of the other judges, right? Does Samson uh, develop an army around him? Is, does he get a following? Does he lead some great military campaign? Not at all. In fact, every single example of Samson's ministry is it's him and him alone. He's just a go-it-alone deliverer. Jesus was a go-it-alone deliverer for the deliverance that Jesus would provide only he could give. The person, the man, the son consecrated. Mary, your child will save the world from their sin. And only he and he alone can do it. Now, note a detail here. He shall begin to deliver. It's also unique and, and, it's, and it's different from the other judges. Because right from the bat, God has consecrated Samson. He set Samson aside. He's got this plan, this vision. But right even before he's been conceived, God's like, he'll begin to do something. He's not going to finish. And we know this historically, that Samson, while he uh, has quite a battle royale with the Philistines, and his life closes with kind of this, I guess, beautiful tragedy, the Philistines continue on. Like the Philistines won't actually be fully dealt with by Israel until the times of David. Samson will begin a work that David will complete. And God right from the beginning knows this. Which brings up kind of another thought that you've got to keep in mind when you're looking at the life of Samson. Because Samson illustrates for us something that is incredibly complicated and convoluted and somewhat mysterious. Because there is undoubtedly a call of God on Samson's life. Like God has a plan and he's going to accomplish that plan through Samson. In fact, there's nothing that Samson can do to discount the plan that God is going to accomplish through his life. At the same time, we see Samson's free will all over the place. So you have these two things working in concert. Samson doing like the total craziest, opposite, non-calling, non-consistent with his vow. Like he's an idiot. You see his will going this way and God's will still accomplishing through Samson what he wanted. 
I don't understand it. God's sovereignty, man's free will, there's all kinds of euphemisms and, and fun little tit-tats that you can throw out there, you know. Well, when I get to heaven on this side of the pearly gates, you know, it'll say, for whosoever wills. <laughs> and then I go through and I look back and on the backside, predestined before the foundations of the earth. Or like it's a pulley that's going up into a ceiling and we pull one rope, it goes up, pull the other, it goes down. And you're like, I don't see how it's connected. And there's a pulley. Great. Doesn't make any sense. But we see it. In fact, when I run into like a really hard line Calvinist, I just start talking about their own life. So you're saying that was God? Like that was what he wanted to do. You cheating on your wife. <laughs> well, no, well, but, but he's in control of it all. And just because we can look back and see how he uses our stupidity for his glory doesn't mean that our stupidity was necessary. Again, I'm not giving you any like solid applications here or explanations. But you will see within Samson's life, this weird countercurrents, but they all flow the same direction. God uses Samson in his foolishness. Could he have used Samson in his obedience? Well, sure, but that's not his story. <laughs> that's a hypothetical game that's foolish. But he does use Samson in his stupidity. You know, I think I have probably learned more radical lessons by observation from people I looked up to in my life that totally screwed up. And I'm sitting there like, wow, I don't want to do that. I'm going to make a note not to do that. I saw how that worked. I saw how that played out. You know what? I'm going to go a different way. Now, did God use, was that God's will? Well, no, but did God use it? Sure. God would much rather use our obedience. I do think that there's this silver lining that Samson teaches us that God can also use our disobedience. That being said, Samson's story will end up with him blinded, binded, and grinding. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, oh, I wish I, wish I could hear her voice, right? A man of God came to me. Now she understands that there was something different about this guy. Notice she doesn't say this creature with these big flowing wings and a halo. No, it was a man. A man of God came to me. And his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. Now she's referencing back to, again, this character that pops up all throughout the Old Testament all throughout their history. She's like, hey, you know that angel of God we've heard about? This guy was, I mean, it has to be as close to that as I can think. She's getting closer, right? And then she says his countenance, it was like the countenance of the angel of God. It was awesome. But I did not ask where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. I forgot to get his email address. 
My bad. I didn't even get his name. She's so excited. She rushes back. She tells Manoah, I, I encountered this man. Now, again, we know it's Jesus and his countenance. She can't even describe it. She's like, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's a holy glow. You know, it, it's what's interesting about, again, and you can study this maybe a little bit more on your own. People within the scriptures that get really close to God glow like God. Like a famous example, there's two really, is Moses went up on, on the mount and he's hanging out with God. God's giving him the law. They're talking, they're going back and forth. He, Moses describes a train of his robe like the heavens, right? And then Moses comes off the mountain and everyone's freaked out. Why? Because he's radioactive. Literally, he's glowing. He is shining like the sun. They're like, bro, you got to put a covering over your face. You're freaking us all out. He's in the presence of God and the glow, the countenance of God manifests in himself. Interesting. You know, it's, it's theorized that when you go back to the Garden of Eden, there's something unique about Adam and Eve before sin. We're told that they were naked but unashamed. And then what's fascinating is that when they sinned, the immediate compulsion was A, to hide, but also to cover themselves. So they, they actually cover themselves. And, and oftentimes in the description of why, now are they seeking a covering? It's like, well, they just looked at each other. And it's like, oh my goodness gracious, I need to cover that up. Like that there was insecurities and all these other things were going on. And that is one theory, and no doubt sin does breed that. But the rabbis, the scholars, the Hebrews viewed it a different way. That the covering was not so much to cover their insecurity, but to conceal the absence of something. That beforehand, humanity was clothed. And you can, you can read about our heavenly garments and what heaven is like, that we're clothed with righteousness. And what if that's an actual thing? That in the garden, they were naked and unafraid because they were clothed by God and this holiness and this righteousness. And then the moment they sinned, those garments are gone. And they're like, woo right? And they're covering to conceal that they've lost this light within them. Which then becomes interesting because what does Jesus promise to do? First, he says, I am the light of the world. And then what does he want to do with that light? He wants to put it in us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. I'm the light of the world, but you then become a light bearer. You are given back what was lost from sin. His countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. It was awesome. And then you have Stephen, right? The first martyr of the church who's being stoned to death and he looks and he sees Jesus and we're told that the people that were there said that his face shone like the sun. There's something to this, isn't there? You know, they, they talk about, I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, the Mormon glow. You know, Mormons don't have any caffeine. They don't drink alcohol. They're very particular with their diet. And as a result, like you can like run into someone like, oh, you're a Mormon. Um, the outfit tends to give it away, but um, there's just like something weird about your face. Like, man, have you ever have you ever just encountered someone 
and you didn't know they were a believer, but you knew? Without a word being said, you could see them. So let your light shine before men. Let your light shine before men. That doesn't have anything to do with your deeds, and it doesn't have anything to do with your words. Do you see there's something about our essence? A holy glow. It's something we can't create. It's not something we conjure up. It's something that God fills us with. And that light shines brighter the closer we are and the longer we spend time with Jesus. His countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. It was awesome. Now, I didn't get his digits, so Manoah said to me, oh, he said to me, she's continuing. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or, or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So she's recounting this experience, what, the, what, what Jesus told her. I, I, again, observe, there's a kind of a wrinkle, a detail. If you compare what, the, what Jesus said and now how her, she recounts it, notice that he said, um, uh, he shall be a Nazarite to God, back to verse 5, from the womb. But then she adds, she'll be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, that's, that's a new detail. She's interpreting something that Jesus has said. Ironically, though, she's wrong. Because we'll look at the life of Samson, and he doesn't, like in every single of the three categories, no fruit of the vine, don't touch anything unclean, don't shave your head. He will violate all three of them. He will not be a, a Nazarite to his, to, his, to his death. He will abandon that vow. What Jesus says from his womb is correct, but then she adds to his death, that's a detail, prophetic in some regard. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent, come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. There's not a lot of prayers recorded in the book of Judges. I don't know if you've noticed that. There's not a lot. This is, this is, this is one. So Manoah gets this word from his wife. He doesn't know the identity of the man. He doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know how to get in touch with him. And what does he do? He's been given this awesome promise through his wife that they'll have a son, an heir, a child, and he's got this unique calling, and this is what he'll do, that God is saying this, but he, but he wants more. He, well, I need more instruction. How do I raise him? How do I teach him? I want to get this right. And he, what does he do with his need? He just comes to the Lord. He prays. Does he pray once? Look, we're not given context to the time. Is she already pregnant? So he knows the fulfillment of the promises? He knows this is happening. He's like, oh man, this is on me as a dad. God has a plan for my kid and I need to make sure I don't mess up that plan. You know, dads, that, that, that's a big one. <laughs> God has plans for your kids. And, and as a dad, you're just like, Lord, I just don't want to mess that up. Not to say that you can, but we want to be a godly example. And we want to take that heavenly call seriously. And what should we do? We should come to the Lord. You need to teach me what I need to teach him. And then I love what follows. And God listened. It's great. The word listen isn't just that God heard. 
kind of be a bad way to end the story. And God heard and was like, cool. Now the word means that he heard and then acted. His prayer was received and then moved God. So God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God, Jesus, came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband, and she came, he came, said, look, the man who was with me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose and followed his wife. They came to the man and he said, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? Could have told, told us her name. And he said, I am. Now, again, that would, that would be great if that was Emi Ego, if that connected back to Exodus 3. It, the am is italicized. It's just I. <laughs> I. Like he's a pirate. And so Manoah said, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord again, Jesus, said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. And then he repeats, she may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I have commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you for we will prepare a young goat for you. Now, there's been a lot of clues to the identity of this man. What have we not been given? His name or his identity. Manoah's wife gives this description. It gives us a lot of clues. But now Manoah's like, I got to know who this dude is. I got to know. And the only way I'm going to know, and he, and he kind of pulls out some Eastern hospitality, is we need to, we need to hang out. We need to break some bread. So instead of just moving on, you know, he invites him. Can we prepare a goat? Can we have dinner? Will you stay over? We watch the ball game together, you know? But the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah, again, this is an addition by the author. For Manoah, Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Now understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, I understand why you're inviting me in. I understand you're wanting my identity. I understand you're also trying to prepare a meal. Instead of a meal, why don't you offer a sacrifice that can only be given to the Lord? So what Jesus is basically saying is like, ta-da, this is who I am. You shouldn't be offering me food. You should be making an offering. You should be making a sacrifice. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? That when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. It is wonderful. Now, admittedly, you'll, you'll think to Isaiah Chapter 9, verse 6. The Lord, wonderful counselor, mighty God. Totally different word. No connection whatsoever. The word wonderful here 
it literally can be translated as incomprehensible. You want to know my name. Here's the problem, Noah. If I told you my name, it would blow your mind. You couldn't wrap your brain around it. How awesome. You know, again, it's, it's these type of moments that, that I just, I cringe at a general like cultural thing that has gone on for the last 30 years within American Christianity. There was that funny t-shirt that everybody kind of wore. Jesus is my homeboy. Remember that? It was kind of that thing. Maybe, maybe that was just my world. But like you had these cool t-shirts that was like, it was the Fabio Jesus, the old English Jesus, and it was Jesus is my homeboy. And there was this whole deal of like Jesus being my friend and my buddy and, and uh, you know, me and Jesus, pals. Um, a lot, some of the worship songs that were written kind of had that vibe. Um, it was a weird season of Christianity, but it was like this, like Jesus being super approachable and loving and kind and, 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 and just emotionally oozy. Which again, I'm not saying like is, 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 is wrong. I'm just saying it's incomplete. And there's, there's kind of a bit about Jesus that you should keep in mind. Like when you get to heaven, every example of someone that gets to heaven, you know what the reaction isn't? Oh, Jesus, let me cuddle in your lap. You're so warm. No. You get to heaven and you see Jesus and every example is boom. You fall down as if you're dead in the presence of Jesus. Right? I think sometimes we're a little too lackadaisical with how we approach and discuss Jesus. He's our king, he's our Lord, he's our savior, he's our friend, that's true. He's a lover of our souls, that's described, but he's beyond, his name is incomprehensible. And then he exalts, we're told in the Psalms, his word even above his name. You know, it's the name of Jesus, it's at the name of Jesus that every nation of this world will bow. It is at his name, they will be forced into submission by his name. His name is powerful. In the gospel of John, when they come to arrest Jesus and they're like, hey, are you Jesus? He says, Emi ego, I am. And boom, all the soldiers fell down as if they were dead. He just uttered his name and there was power and everyone was knocked flat. All these Roman soldiers coming to arrest him. His name, boom, invokes power. That's why we shouldn't take his name in vain, but that's why people do because it's the only name that has power. Ever notice that no one gets really upset and they're like, dead Buddha. Have you, when was the last time you heard someone take Buddha's name in vain? They stub their toe in like, Harry Krishna or Muhammad. Why do people not use, like in those moments, why is there no release in using any of the other false gods? Because there's no power in their name. Why do even the pagans use the name of Jesus? Because there's, they understand that there's some power and they're using it in a twisted and warped way. So his name and then his word is even above his name, which is why the power in this book, it's so powerful, it can change your life. Why do you ask my name saying, it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering 
and he offered it upon the rock of the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. I will say so. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. What? I'm reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, one place you will always find Jesus? In the midst of a fire. In the midst of your fire. He ascends in the midst of Manoah's fire. And Manoah and his wife, when they saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Again, this is the identical reaction we find of Gideon. This does reveal to us a little bit of Manoah because that makes no sense at all. And for every Manoah, you need a good wife, okay? So Manoah's like, we're gonna die. That was the angel of the Lord. But his wife said to him, Honey, uh, if the Lord had desired to kill us, uh, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all of these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. Manoah, what you're saying makes no sense. If God wanted to kill us, then he wouldn't have said, I would conceive and bear a son and he'll be a Nazarite and this, that, and the other. I love this woman. Manoah is freaking out. We're going to die. And she's like, get yourself together, son. We're not going to die. Did you not listen to the man? It's pr- it'd be hard to fulfill the promise if we're dead. Every Manoah needs a good wife. Man, I've, I've had those moments, haven't you, fellas? It hits the fan. You get the bad news. You come home. It's all falling apart. The end is near. And God gave you a good woman that's like, shut up. God is as faithful as he was then. His promises are just as sure as they are now. Quit freaking out. Let's have a little faith. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Benaiah, Dan, between Zorah and Eshton. The, the word Samson, there's actually quite a little bit of controversy about the translation. Um, of his name. The, the best that can be figured is that it's, it's light, like the sun. Again, I think interesting. 
the parallels with Jesus. Is Samson the son? No, but he's like the son. And don't you even in the verses that we just read find an interesting parallel to the life of Jesus? We're given Jesus' birth, his origin, and then there's this huge gap apart from one little story about the age of 12. Like Jesus' childhood, his upbringing, like we don't get to Jesus until his ministry begins, right? Luke will tell us that the child grew and increased in knowledge and wisdom and the spirit was about like, like it's the same language that we're given. We're not given his upbringing, Samson's, we're not giving Jesus's. It's just told that this had happened, but we're also told that the Lord blessed him. This is the only time that you find this word in the book of Judges. God blesses Samson. He's growing and he's developing. He's got a call and a ministry. And the spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. The word moved here, again, it's different than what we've found thus far. You'll find more Holy Spirit interactions in the life of Samson than any other character in Judges or the Old Testament. Constantly, you'll find that the spirit came upon him or moved him. Again, the divine presence and influence. This word, it means that the spirit was literally beating him like a drum that he's seeing what's happening within his people. He's seeing their spiritual condition. He's growing up, the spirit is moving him, he's blessed and he sees. And that, my friend, will set the stage for the ministry of Samson, which we'll get to next Sunday. So Father, thank you for your word.